Welcome to the Spatial Reality Podcast, your resource for authentic conversations about spatial computing technologies. I'm Sean Higgins, your host. Every few weeks, I'll interview an expert to learn how this technology is changing a huge variety of fields and industries and what we can do to prepare for what's next. Today's guest, Bill Emerson, is a 3D reality capture expert in the fields of global mapping, surveying, and AEC. He runs Emerson Technical Consulting, a geospatial technology advisory firm based in Denver, Colorado, that provides professional consulting services to commercial geospatial technology firms, industry associations, service providers, government agencies, and academic institutions. Thanks for joining us, Bill, and let's get started. going to start this podcast the way I start every podcast. I'm going to ask, what does the term spatial computing mean to you? Thanks, Sean, for having me on. I've listened to several of your other podcasts, and I've given it a great amount of thought. For me, it's evolved quite a bit over time, and I base my perspective on my experience in the industries. I think we're now just getting to the real, true spatial computing in 2023 and beyond. Let me explain what I mean by that. Early on in my career, I hate to say this, 1994, the first several years of me working in GIS for an organization was building up the foundation of their geospatial data stores, right? My first job was dealing with property parcels, taking a paper map that had been digitized into a GIS format and then making changes and editing of that. A lot of just busy work, in that sense, spatial computing at that time was, hey, we've got to build up all these data sets so that we can actually do something with it. And then the internet boom hit in the late 90s. And then we're building all this geospatial data, whether it's the city, county, government levels, some private enterprise and some private investment, but not too much. The internet kind of opened it up even further. And that's where you saw the pickup of groups like MapQuest actually using data in that case to provide navigation and directions to people who didn't know where they were going. Once that continued to mature, I think the main industries that were using GIS were the utilities, anybody with pipes and wires, anybody in the government side that had to handle location data quite heavily, which a local government does. Those groups were just starting to kind of build out their data sets and begin to share them. They are throwing it up on a server somewhere and then you can download the data and do whatever you want, right? Not very elegant, not very efficient. And what we're seeing today is what I really consider as spatial computing. Now we've got tons of data sets across the board, online archives galore. And those organizations, and I'll mention one up in Boulder called EarthScope, they've got tons of different types of geophysical and physical data, LIDAR and many other things stored and available to anybody. And they're building tools so people can access their data in the cloud, run operations or applications against that data, and then generate results. It's really evolved to something quite nice, which is what we're seeing today. Groups like Earthscope, groups like NOAA, they're developing a an initiative they've called, they call the digital coast. So how they utilize that data and open that up for other people to chew on and to research and to utilize and profit from. So 
to me, the spatial computing now is allowing people access to data, spatial data, as well as other types of data, demographic, could be census data, could be a bunch of different things, and then giving them the tools to exploit those data sets. And by exploit, I mean, of course, not just analyze it, but create new products from those products. And that's the really exciting part for me. And I think your previous guest, Nadine from OGC, mentioned that same kind of a concept rather nicely. So to me, that's what spatial computing means today. Where do you see this idea being on the hype cycle within the business world? Do people look at this and say, you know, Microsoft's getting out of this space. I'm not interested in jumping into it. Or do they say OGC has brought all these people together and we're at the start of something really fascinating. Where do you see the general business attitude toward this technology being? I think we have climbed a little bit of the hill, maybe a 10% of it, but I think we've still got a long way to go before commercial enterprises, certainly private enterprises really embrace and utilize and leverage those, those investments they've made. For example, a couple of years ago when I was at Merrick, we did a NERC project and NERC was a basically mapping all the transmission lines in the U S to make sure they were safe. That was a result of a blackout back in 20, the early 2010s on the Eastern seaboard. So the federal government came in and said, okay, you've got to prove to us where, where your stuff is and that it meets our standards, right? And so through that process, these folks, the utilities were forced to go collect LIDAR and go through this analysis. And then once they found the issues, go fix stuff. So they're certainly not happy about investing all that money. And I can clearly remember one of the CEOs of one of the utilities was ranting. I forget where it was. It was probably at a conference or something like that. And he said, why the hell am I spending so much money on this? It's outrageous. And he was complaining about the federal oversight and that stuff. And I said, look, I understand your anger. And I said, I totally agree with it. The challenge you have is to take that data and figure out how you can use it across your enterprise, not just to solve this one task, but how other groups could utilize it. And I remember he was like, that's a really good point. We hadn't really thought of it that way. And I said, you've spent a lot of money and I know you have, I've seen the bills. I know how much we're making and I know how much we're selling it for. It's expensive. It takes a lot of time and effort. If you're going to spend that kind of money, then it's up to you. And we'd like to help you apply that data to other applications, their land group, their permitting group, all these environmental group. And he's like, wow, they could really use it. And I said, that's right. So rather than buying it once and using it once, buy it once and use it six times. And to him, that was a kind of a bit astonishing, I think, but many organizations are in the same spot. They don't know how to leverage those data investments they've made across their enterprise. So I think there's still tons of room for growth. It seems like a lot of these commercial enterprises, they're like the utilities that you were talking about, maybe want to see somebody else do it first right? and want to know what the applications are before they jump in. At this point, it seems to somebody like you or me, like not a particularly big risk to say that they could get a lot of value out of this 3D data. So it's is it a lack of vision? What's the problem there? What's holding people back? 
I don't think it's as much a lack of a vision as much as it is a lack of exposure to the content, to the topic. Mm -hmm. They haven't been properly educated about what geospatial means and how it relates to the larger topic of what I call location intelligence for Starbucks. Where are they going to put a new uh, location or where are they going to drop a location because it's not operating or performing well? That stuff matters if you can put it in the right context for the business leaders. I think the challenge for business leaders, especially on the commercial side, is they've got so much on their plate, it's hard for them to, to know everything, right? And so it takes some time to, for somebody to sit down with them and educate them and say, hey, this is important because we need this data because it's going to benefit us in the following ways, or it's going to help these departments become more efficient, or it's going to allow us to support and serve our customers better so that when they call us and say, our, my, hey, my lights are out, the utility is going to know, oh, yeah, we already know that. We've got crews in your area working on it, and here's what time we think it's going to be back on. So there's a lot of really positive business benefits. I just don't think that the, I just don't think industry in general is, has been exposed to it. I think there still is a lot of work to do there. And when we were emailing before this interview, you said you've noticed the transition from discrete capture methodologies to more continuous capture methodologies. I assume this would be among enterprises or companies or organizations that have already dug into this technology. My guess is they're not capturing more than once unless they've already recognized and seen the value of using these tools. Can you talk a bit about what that means to go from discrete to continuous capture and then maybe what sort of benefits and applications people are, are able to realize yeah. as a result of this transition? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this topic of discrete meaning let's say it's an industrial plant, right? In this plant, we've got a new tool or process or piece of equipment we need to move in there. So for that area, they're going to place that new piece of equipment. They want to scan it so they can bring it in and, and they're not going to destroy all the rest of their equipment. So, so typically they'd look at that and go, okay, we'll scan it and we'll create the model. And then from that model, we'll do our analysis and figure out what's the easiest path to bring that stuff in. And then how do we get it set up? And that's a pretty typical industrial issue. I was exposed a couple of years ago when I was at Merrick, a gentleman from Intel, the chip manufacturer called us, and he was working at one of their fabrication plants down in Arizona, I believe. And he said, we've got so much going on at this plant. Those plants are gigantic, right? They're just huge. There's thousands of workers in them. They're very complex infrastructure in there. And he goes, we're adding so much new equipment, so much new pipes and wires. I can't keep track of it. In fact, I can keep track of it to the point where I don't know where it's going in or where it's not going in. I can't just say, hey, go scan section Z. He said, I have to figure out a way to scan everything every day just so I can figure out what has changed. Now, at the, this is a couple of years ago. That's a monumental task manually. As we see the influence or the emergence of artificial intelligence and some machine learning technologies, which both of them I think are the most overused, overhyped technical terms in use today, think that we can begin to move from, hey, let's just go capture that one section to, hey, let's put 
scanners either on autonomous vehicles that transit around that facility or on workers that they can go through there and the scanner will automatically turn on or turn off based off if it sees something new. And so that's way advanced. It's probably not really here yet, but that's kind of what I mean from discrete to continuous. How do we more efficiently track changes over time rather than just kind of piecemeal it, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So that's something I think that's going to be, it's going to need some AI. It's, it will need some ML just to improve that intelligence and kind of take the manual piece out of it. And I think, of course, we want to get away from that. And so I think AI and ML present opportunities to do that. So it sounds like we're experiencing a confluence for a lot of different technologies at once. Yep. And you're talking about viewing them in a more holistic way. We got 3D capture, we have machine learning, artificial intelligence, we have smaller sensors, we have autonomy. And then the confluence of these things seems like it would be a bit more than a step change in the way that we approach any sort of spatial work, whether that be updates at a factory or... I know we said we wouldn't talk about this, potentially construction work. Would you say that's the case? We're seeing these things start to come together that have been separate from one another for a long time? Yes, I think in some ways, certainly. The larger, I think the larger integration of geospatial into the GIS and the CAD environments is ongoing and it's moving fairly rapidly. The challenge is, is, I just read a tweet the other day and this guy was complaining about pulling GIS data into a CAD system or CAD data into a GIS system and how clunky and goofy it was. And I was like, yeah, those systems around for as long as 25 years, as long as I've been around and we're still no, really no better off than we were before. Now, groups like Esri and AutoCAD are trying to make inroads into that, but some of the main hurdles are more vendor centric than they are industry centric, mm -hmm. right? Industry wants like a utility, they want to be able to see everything and pull up data on a screen and touch that pole and see all the asset records, see all the work order records, see when it was last touched, what equipment's on there, how old it is, all that good stuff, right? The end user doesn't care about where the data is coming from. If it's coming out of Esri geo database or it's come out of a CAD system, they care less and the utility shouldn't care. Right? They're trying to solve business problems and serve their customers and keep the lights on. That has nothing to do with these vendor issues between different vendors or the interoperability of these data sets. So the commercial push is toward interoperability and, and toward integration. I think the industry is challenged to get there. And to get there, they've got to change their stripes in terms of, hey, it can't just be all these different silos. This stuff now has to all work together and has to be seamless. And the end user doesn't care where it comes from, whether it's Oracle, whether it's geodatabase, it doesn't matter, right? They just want to click on that button, see what they need to see so they can go out and do their job. In some ways, I, I think we've made a lot of progress. In some ways, I think there's still a ton of progress to be made just because again, the commercial organizations that are exploiting this data the best, I have smart folks in charge and are doing a lot of that work themselves. But I think as we get move forward in time, I think you'll see a larger integration and move toward interoperability. And that's where the OGC stuff comes into play because it just, it makes sense, right? The data's there. 
connect it and utilize it. And I think most forward thinking organizations understand that, but there's a lot of laggards resistant to it. And you're trying to break down fiefdoms and break down silos in big organizations. That's tough because yeah. people say, Hey, I'm going to take my job away. That AI system is going to take my inspection job away. No, so, I don't see that. I see that these new technologies augment what they're able to do and allow them to do more bridge inspections more fast, more quicker, and more efficiently, or more pole inspections more quickly. I just think it's to be competitive going forward, they're going to have to do. Do you think this lack of interoperability is as much a problem as lack of information for, say, smaller enterprises, maybe who don't have the, they don't have developers in-house, they don't have, a lot of places will tout, hey, these two tools may not work together, but we have an API at best. Right. Do you think there's a significant number of people out there who recognize the value of this and maybe have applications in mind who understand what they might do with this kind of data, but just aren't able to? because the tools won't work together properly? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it, honestly. I think with the small organizations, you know, and I've worked with a number of different co-ops, electric co-ops here in Colorado. Rural co-ops are usually taking power from a bigger IOU, in investor-owned utility like an Excel Energy. They're getting power from them, and they've got a small little distribution network, say, of, I don't know, a 1,000 meters, and they're trying to, to maintain that. So for a small co-op, for them to even, one, to have a solid understanding of where all their equipment is, i.e. in a GIS or some other information system, is difficult. And then on top of that, it's very, very difficult for them to go out and inspect it and manage and monitor it. So, so the interoperability will help them down the line, but getting them up to speed and educating them, I'm back to the education piece, educating them about how this stuff works is critical. They're used to doing it the way they've been doing it for the last 50 years. So to make these big sea changes and is really tough. And so I think there's more businesses sprouting up to support those co-ops because I think they also, the co-ops also recognize, Hey, we don't have the staff to do all this stuff. We're gonna have to bring people in and figure out how to do it more efficiently. To change gears a little bit, I know we had talked about AI and machine learning before. Beyond whatever hype we might be experiencing on that front, it certainly seems like the latest frontier for VC funding. If you mention AI or machine <laughs> learning, your startup's going to get some money. But it also seems like there are some potential legitimate applications in both geospatial and a sort of more local spatial context. Beyond the example you gave earlier about the Intel factory, what do you see as being the possibilities if we're able to get a mature 3D data sets and a mature AI or machine learning systems? What could that potentially do for these smaller to medium-sized enterprises? It could be a dam. It could be any infrastructure, anything. The new AI capabilities are really perfect tailor-made for that type of application, which is, hey, I'm going to throw a drone up around this bridge and it's going to come back and give me results of, hey, I found these following things in these following locations. The concrete is spalling over here. We get some delamination of the concrete, i.e. the concrete's falling off or coming loose from the pilings or structures. 
normally you would take a, a person would go, you'd have a worker go out there and they'd write it down and document it. On the third piling over from the street, we, I see this. Now with this new AI and new inspection technologies, they're able to identify problems, prioritize those issues, and then effectively allocate those resources to where the priorities are. So that's the first big one for me. And then beyond that, I think it's it's more of the automation of normal monitoring tasks, like you mentioned, a construction site, having a robot walk around a construction site and document daily how things are progressing. There's real value in that. And I know a gentleman here in Denver who's got a business doing that very thing, and he, he basically just hires a bunch of guys to walk around a site with a specialized camera. And as, as they're walking around, they're just capturing data. He's loaded that data into a system so he can go to the contractor and say, hey, con contractor's got a, a daily dashboard and they can look up any day of that project and what was going on, any location within that site. They can go see a day-by-day -day progression of what's happened there. That's really powerful and that's very helpful. So I think the next big steps are like inspection and monitoring. And then beyond that, it's going to get really specific to the business needs. So it seems like generally when we talk about this stuff, we'll talk about it in the context of AEC construction, oil and gas, larger sort of industries. But the idea of monitoring and inspection and tracking of change over time, in theory, is applicable to anybody, any business that trades in physical assets over time. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, last year I was involved with a project where it was a large railway company where around what they call their hump yards, where they bring in all their trains and all their cars and then reorient them to do different work and to load them up and then to run them off to wherever they need to go to. Those are very dangerous, busy environments. So this company said to us, Hey, we want to automate that completely, right? I'm not going to send a guy out anymore. I want a drone to go up every morning, capture the entire yard, and then have it automatically tell me where it's found problems. I.e., you know, there's there's something there's something that's been laid across the track that we need to clear, or there's a piece of equipment that's fallen off of a rail car or something like that. Their need was very much safety based, and that's a big piece of any commercial operation in the U.S. It's, if you talk to any commercial industrial operator in the U.S., the first thing they're going to mention is safety. When I worked at Merrick, an engineering firm in, in Denver, the first thing we talked about in any meeting we had, anything, we were mandated to talk about safety, have a safety moment before every single discussion, no matter what it was. And even if we were meeting with a customer, we'd say, okay, let's talk about safety a little bit. And somebody would be asked to come up with an example of, Hey, here's a, here's let's, when we're working in this, if we are doing a project, if we're working in this site, let's, let's make sure that, you know, everybody's got the proper PPE equipment on and that don't forget your hard hat. It's important for that. So safety is a huge deal. And that's something across all industries in the U S is really the priority and the prior it's the priority because we have a lot of lawyers and they love to sue people and. Of course, these organizations want to limit their exposure and their liability as much as they can. And so no one wants, to, no one's in business to, to have their employees die. So 
those are hugely important. Safety is a hugely important issue. And so anything that involves safety, whether it's AI or ML, any that, anything that can be used to improve safety of workers or environments is absolutely huge. And so that's a big area that I think is, we don't talk about enough because to talk about it means we have to bring up nasty, ugly examples and people don't want to deal with that, right? They want to think, oh, we're off building buildings and everything works great. And no one ever gets hurt. That's not the case, right? I just read about a utility just two days ago. They had a worker, a subcontractor in their, one of their, it was in one of their substation yards, got killed. Now, I don't know how he got killed, but he was in a substation, very dangerous environment. The poor guy probably just made a mistake. And before he could react, he was dead. So that's a huge piece. And, and again, it's something that's top of the mind for me always. Yeah. So given, given the safety imperative, given the obvious benefits of things like change tracking over time of inspection, let's say I'm, I'm the owner or operator of a a small to medium size commercial concern. And I'm convinced that getting into this technology is a good idea. What do you recommend given the hurdles that we've discussed, given mm. talk of possibilities that are still off somewhere in the future? Is it time to, is it time to just start educating myself and waiting to see, waiting to pick my moment? Is it time to jump in now? I think it depends on the enterprise and on the industry and on that person. So certainly there's a, there's some component of kind of self-initiative of, Hey, I've got to broaden my perspective and learn more about, go ask people how they're doing it and to, to listen to them about how they're doing it and the challenges they've faced. So there's many different avenues to do that. I always keep, I always call this process the keeping up with the Joneses, right? So by nature, an organization is going to look around and say, we're not sure how to do this. What is our, what is our guy over in the next County doing? Or what's the co-op up at the mountains? How do they handle this? Cause they're about the same size and they've got about the same staff. So one way is certainly through events, trade shows or conferences where they can go and learn from others or hear from others, how they've handled or approached different situations. The other one is I've done some work recently with a couple private industry educational groups, for lack of better words. There's a couple here. There's one based here in, in Denver. There's another one on the East coast that I'm working with right now. And they offer educational programs, workshops, specifically tailored for fusion systems, electrical distribution, wastewater systems, telecom, very niche little areas where they can, where basically they're bringing in subject matter experts from different utilities or different organizations and educating and explaining these processes to their cohorts in these smaller groups. So that's one way I've found is a, a really efficient way to do it. And a lot of that ties into, especially if you're working for a utility or some type of a organization that, that has some kind of professional association is in, in, is using some type of a standardized protocol standard standards in general for how they build their systems. There's a lot of continuing education credits available from those groups that they could say, Hey, we're going to spend, I don't know, $1,500 at for our guy to go sit in this workshop for two days. And as a result, he's going to get three CEUs 
that'll benefit him in his career down the line. He'll gain experience from it. He'll be learning from subject matter experts. So that to me is a really efficient and effective way to reach those folks. Trade shows, not so much. You can't expect anybody to go online and do it themselves. There's maybe 2% of the people that'll do that, but mostly they're going to be learning from others that have already cut down the path. However, they can do that. And I think they're utilizing webinars, they're using like podcasts, they're going on YouTube. That's the current joke. If you want to learn how to do anything, go on YouTube. If you got a problem with your dishwasher, go on YouTube. So I think it's kind of a coordinated approach, but it's, it's the, again, the challenge for these groups is there's nowhere to learn it. Like you can't go to a school. You can't go to a, in many cases, it's not like you can go hit your local university or your local community college up and there's going to have that content there. They have to learn from commercial folks, from professionals. And, and honestly, with these smaller groups, they're more comfortable in those situations, right? I've been to these, some of these workshops for utility groups, and it's basically a bunch of linemen, men or women that are there. So they, they speak the same language. They're in the same club. They know each other and they know the issues everybody's dealing with. So for them, that gives them a lot of confidence. It gives them a lot of, lot of help because they're learning from other, others mistakes and they're getting lessons learned and they're learning about things they, they probably wouldn't anticipate before they, they entered that kind of learning opportunity. I think those are the way, the main ways in which people are going to learn. And it's not going to be linear for anybody. If I could try to paraphrase what you're saying, it may or may not be the right solution for you, but you'll only find out by talking to other people who have been in the same situation. You can all figure it out together. It's not necessarily a matter of just going out and, I don't know, buying an Oculus or getting a drone and slapping a LiDAR on it, but you're going to work within your industry and work within your cohort. A good buddy of mine has runs a small landscape architecture firm here in Denver, and he, he's an architect by nature. He got exposed to GIS and geospatial during grad school. He took an interest in that and it has extended that kind of interest into his own business. Most of the work he's been doing is using a camera from a drone photogrammetry, pretty basic stuff, but that's been plenty good for his clients. It's been great for his clients. He's been helping out the Colorado Department of Transportation understand and map areas here in Colorado. We've got a lot of issues with rockfall and rockfall mitigation, whereas rocks come flying down the mountain and land on the roadways. Obviously, that's a danger to the pedest- or to the travelers that are transiting that roadway, as well as the infrastructure of the roadway. So his ability to help them understand what they're dealing with on a monthly to month basis is huge. Now his interest is naturally going, well, I'm getting a lot of people ask me a lot about LIDAR and he called me and said, well, ask me to help him with that. And so I've slowly been holding his hand and saying, here's the things you need to go learn. Here's the people you need to go talk to, go attend this workshop, go learn from them, see how they're doing it. Before, when I started at Merrick in 2006, the idea of an individual collecting LIDAR by themselves was a fantasy, right? Now it's pretty easy and pretty, pretty affordable. The technology's gotten us to a place where it's possible. And now folks like John are using it or educating themselves on how they could apply it. Yeah. So it sounds like if you think this might be for you, then go out and talk to people. And it turns right. out that it might be for you. 
Bill, I have a lot more questions that I could ask you, but I know we got to end this at some point. So thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can find more episodes of Spatial Reality in your usual podcast spots. Leave us a review if you enjoyed today's interview. And so you know, I'm always looking for more experts to talk to. So hit me up on LinkedIn if there's anybody you'd love to hear from. See you next episode.